Yeah, I wrote, I wrote um, Steph-EN. That's Steph-Ian. the best way to do it. That's the and best way to so do it. My, yeah. I have been remiss yeah, so I don't recently, it turns out. So. Yeah. All good. Yeah. Right. I, um, um, I, put, I put it on my website now um, that, it's, um, that it's pronounced Dina as if it was two E's because uh, the amount of times that I've been at conferences and they're like, we're very proud to have the keynote speaker here, you know, yeah. Christy Gaynor. And it's like, <laughs> no, that's not like yeah, uh, This is going to be another amazing episode of Can't Sell This. I'm <laughs> very excited about our guest today. Uh, we've got the wonderful Christy Dina here. Uh, Christy and I met a few years ago. It's actually more than a few years ago now. Wow. Um, and uh, I'm just so excited to hear about what you've been working on. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, yes. Thank you very much for the invite. It's great to be here. And it's great to see you. And it's great to meet you, Hugh, as well. You're listening to the Can't Sell This podcast with your hosts, Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Okay, so I guess I'm joining you um, from Australia and from the unceded land of uh, mm. Boon Wurrung country. Uh, so I want to say that straight off. And, and at the moment, it's NADOC week here, so uh, even more important. But yeah, it's unceded land. I am not here by invitation, <laughs> mm. um, um, but, you know, being, being part of the repair work uh, that's going on there, on here. Um, and I'm, what do I do uh, on, on this land that I work with here? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a creative, I'm a uh, writer, uh, designer, director of interactive projects uh, mainly, but interactive and non-interactive projects, so multi-art form projects, and I, an independent researcher and independent educator. Um, independent in all of them because I don't want to have to conform, um, but uh, and and all of them inform each other in in, in that way. Awesome. But yeah, that's uh, that's the the short version. <laughs> Great. I, well, I was just thinking um, because you were doing the the sort of the land acknowledgement, and and um, we've actually never done that with with can't sell this, but it is a practice that is growing in Canada as well. It actually started here in British Columbia, where they don't have any treaties whatsoever, mm-hmm. and so they've uh, its popularity has kind of spread east. And uh, I, I think maybe this is the episode where we were going to do our first one. So I'm just going to say that Toronto is in the dish with one spoon territory. The dish with one spoon territory is a treaty between the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas and the Haudenosaunee uh, that bound them to share the territory and protect the land. Subsequent indigenous nations and peoples, Europeans and all newcomers have been invited into this treaty in the spirit of peace, friendship, and respect. Very nice. That's great. So Christy. That's fantastic. It is important that we we acknowledge that, and we do acknowledge that that. Uh, and I know that Christy, your work is is also always. You've always talked about how. Um, well, well, the ways that come to mind is work out my shit. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah, let's just read I don't think that's what you were saying, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's like, um, but it's. And what I mean by that is like, oh, I'm you know, stop being oblivious to to you know the the history and the reality of you know where i am and 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 i think it's really exacerbated 
um, or it's been amplified at this time of uh, COVID and, and being online because it's even more important to connect with you know, ground yourself, you know, with who you are. So we're not just disembodied heads, you know, sort of talking. And that's like, no, I'm actually coming. I'm actually grounded. I'm, I, I'm sitting on a chair right now. Um, I'm, I'm in, uh, I'm in a room. I could call it my writing room, but I do most of my writing in the shower and while I'm washing dishes, quite frankly. But um, and, you know, and behind me is you know, um, as a bookcase. And, and, and looking out, I've, I've got these beautiful trees and, and these gardens out here. Um, and this is Bulun Buran country um, that has been taken over. It's unseated, um, but it is Bulun Buran country. And the elders have been the caretakers of this land for a very long time. And so I think the connection is like that connection through time and space. You know, it's mm-hmm. grounding us in the moment, but it's also connecting us through time and space. Uh, and the reality is at the moment, you know, this is colonised land and hopefully it'll be coming, going back to um, being in the hands of the people who are the caretakers, you know. Right. So, yeah. 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 So tell me a little bit about what you've been working on. Like, Have there, have there been any interesting projects that you, you're currently working on? <laughs> No, no, yeah, nothing interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I'll tell you about them anyway. Um, So, yes. um, Well, the three, I mean, there's there's consulting stuff. um, There's there's, uh, online teaching and, and sort of workshops, like teaching... Um, interactive storytelling to, you know, creatives across a whole lot of different disciplines. Um, but the original projects that I'm working on at the moment are for me is uh, my, my nonfiction book and my improv storytelling card game and my um, cooperative VR experience. So they're the, my three main projects that I'm, I've brought to the, the front burner, you know, uh, mm. this year. So you've been yeah. pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny people say that. It's like, oh, yeah, you're busy. It's like, no, but this is me scaling down. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> because I'm usually, well, I guess it, it's, the, it's the capitalist thing of, of like, I, I've got to, you know, I've got to keep doing things um, to bring the money in um, and, and, and that panic um, that, comes, that comes with that. And I think... One of the great things about this year is the opportunity for, um, I said it to you before, it's, it's, I see it as the great mm-hmm. unpaid residency of, yeah. of 2020, but it's, it's sort of, a, it, you know, the, the world is that of, of kilter at the moment in, in sort of um, um, a great pause for this great change that I'm, I'm able to actually spend time on my own stuff and, and scrape through, you know, um, I have weirdly um got got enough at the moment to be able to spend time on on my own stuff um and I don't have to run around panic uh all over the place so um and and I actually decided to do this before it came to COVID um it was it's basically you know the thing of like you either have money or you have time um and it was basically I can't (laughs) I can't keep I, I can't. I, I can't keep doing all of these other things and trying to uh, do what's really important to me. But I'd like the hard way, of course. You've got to have enough to actually keep going. You know, to mm-hmm. to know that you're going to have food, to know that you've got to have a place because you know you can't. It's really difficult to create when you don't have 
uh, all of that there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you said this is, this is like a, a, a pared down uh, schedule for you, like that you're usually working on a lot more. <laughs> yes. So how, yeah. how do you, how do you, decide then like what is like uh, we talked a little bit about your sort of your philosophy moving into this sort of like um like you said the great unpaid residency um, <laughs> which i love um, <laughs> but so how, how did you choose those three projects like what was it about them that made you feel these were the ones i want to work on or like how did you make that choice uh the the book i fought i didn't want to write it um oh. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, it just kept coming at me, and um, um, and and through that process, I, you know, some people call it the muse, some people call it um, tapping into other, other, other forces, you know, uh, whatever it is. But um, I don't feel it's just me that's writing this, Um, and I don't mean I'm a I'm a channel and overshadowed, you know, Um, but but. I, and I don't mean that in a mocking way. I'm just being specific. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's um it's something that uh, I was transformed by. I didn't I didn't want to write it, and then as soon as I relaxed into it, yeah, it it, it completely changed me. So, um, uh, and and then I, I saw how important it was for me, and how it radically changed my life. And then I saw how it can. Um, it, it's the right time for it, um, and especially, you know, when the when the fires started happening with, with us here in Australia right, at the beginning yeah. of the year, yeah, and then you know, then COVID, Black Lives um, coming up again uh, with the with the protests. It's like ah, this is the the world's ready, you know, um, to yeah, it's the right time, um, and so. Uh, and, and so that, that's why it's sort of, uh, I feel the urgency now of like, okay, okay, get it done, get it finished, get it finished. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's actually a, a good time uh, and I'm ready to, to move on to next projects. You know, that thing of like when, when you've thought of the next project, you're ready to, to sort of let it go. Uh, and when it comes to the other ones, um, I've uh, one of them, the card game I've been working on for a while and uh, that's, it's, it's it's ready. It's it's. I'm ready to you know to 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 let it out there, um, and so and so yeah. Working with the artist on the final art now, and then final um, player run testing uh, for that, and then with the VR project. That's the one that's early development, and and once again, it's sort of influenced by my experiences with the book and that where I want to I want to create with others now. I want to have mm. more of a partnership model earlier on. I mean, I've always been collaborative, but the mm-hmm. early part of projects, the writing and design and all that sort of stuff, I've pretty much done myself because I don't have to pay myself. <laughs> no, so I don't need a budget, right? So I right. De- you know, develop as much um, as I can with projects myself and then I bring in, bring in other people um, either with my own funds and or with uh, funding. So, But now I'm just like, nope, nope bring in more people earlier and uh and I'm, I'm excited about it and um and other people are excited about it so it's it sort of make it, it makes sense because they all bounce off each other oh it makes sense to me <laughs> <laughs> no that does make sense <laughs> i think it's also interesting because um you said your card game was an improv based game right 
Yes. Yeah. So In, yeah, improv storytelling. Yeah. yeah. And and that uh, like I mean, collaboration is at the heart of improvisation, right? You have to collaborate with the other actors. So I think that's interesting that uh, these are the projects that are are you know um, um, opening you up to bringing in collaborators earlier into the process. Yes, and it's also no coincidence that the, the of the uh, the narrative form as you identify with improv, but also in the, my VR project, it is a emergent storytelling sort of mode mm-hmm. as opposed to an authored on the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is through this process I've been going through the last few years, um, I'm, I'm very interested in story forms that are about creating prompts where people are facilitating an environment where people can go go through and do certain things, but um, but fundamentally putting a lot of the um, more agency, you know, on them. Um, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. It is it is their world and it is their experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more and uh, I mean, a, a little bit selfishly because emergent storytelling <laughs> is something that's very close to my heart. Uh, uh, it's something that I, I've been focusing on for for many many years, and as awesome. we have talked about in the past. Yes. But um, so uh, one of the things that I find really interesting about uh, sort of I would say there's a lot of emergent storytelling or emergent gameplay that's happening in games in video games, uh, and a lot of people talk about this mm-hmm. emergent gameplay where um, it's really about anecdotes. The same thing can be said for uh, role-playing games at the table where uh, players will recount things that their characters did or that they did with their friends through their characters, uh, which is, uh, you know, loosely tied to storytelling. It's, it's, the, it's the little pieces of stories that we tell each other. Uh, but at the same time, um, we're seeing that type of storytelling uh, seep into traditional media not not officially, but through fandom, right? Uh, I think one of the one of the the most uh, um, recognizable cases of that uh, in recent history has been with the the Star Wars sequels, where many fans have sort of there's it's it's polarized the fan base, right? Many fans have sort of. Uh, been taken aback by uh, Ryan Johnson's version and there's been debate over, over what's canon and what's real and, you know, not my star Wars. And, and, and it's, it's this, this property that exists in film that the people who made these films made the story, but the fans have now decided whether they, they want to reject it or accept it uh, because they feel some kind of ownership over that story as fans. And I find it really interesting because that mindset, that's the sort of like collaborative mindset. You can't really make a, a franchise film or a film franchise anymore without engaging those fans and understanding what it is that they want out of the story because they do feel some kind of ownership over it being the fans. Yeah, it's, and the thing is, fans have always been basically, and I call it shaping 
basically mm. making it in a form that customizes to what they're interested in, you know, what, what, they, what, they, what they would like. So they're customizing it for themselves in that regard. Um, and that has always been happening, you know, and so there, there have never been properties in which it's just one word, you know, like, like only one person gets the say, um, but it's just it's more visible now. Um, the fact that people actually respond and do do what they like, um, and it's it's amplified in that regard because it is more visible. Um, so more and more people can engage with it, and uh, obviously we've got the tools in which we can, you know, share them with each other, etc. Uh, but yeah, I think I, I see I see an overlap with what happens in games as well. I, uh, it, it's funny how games. I think they they talk about. A, you know, games being about agency and, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> here you get to be the hero and that. But it's actually a lot of them are just following the same logic as films yeah. and it's yeah. not, it's, yeah, and, it, and it's not because they're copying films necessarily. I think it's a deeper cultural belief mm-hmm. that um, uh, uh, there's not, a lived experience of what it is like to actually have agency in the world. The, you know, the, the lived experience is I have a limited amount of choices that I'm given. Right. Yeah. I'm allowed to do this. I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do that. Not I could actually do anything. And that, that manifests, that, that flows through to the way people create. Yeah. So it's not the technology, it's not the previous media, it's actually a deeper cultural um, experience of limited agency, of, of you know, of conforming, um, you know, of, of, of having, yeah, of not really having the options of what, what, what you can, um, not mm-hmm. believing, not knowing, not having that lived experience of, the, of multiple options. Yeah, or, or just like the expectations that society has on, uh, of us, you know, and, and even if we are never told those expectations, we know that they exist and they are in, in mind and there is, you know, and we are social animals. So we do want to conform to what society sort of dictates as being the boundaries of what we can do for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean we want to conform? Well, it, it's it's like it, the idea of... of um, like you said, the agency that I have in life, the story that I tell is not just dictated by stories that I've heard before, but by what I understand the expectations are of, of my agency, what I'm allowed to do with that agency. So yeah. there's, there's elements that are like f- physical expectations or, or physical restrictions. So things like things that I can't do because I'm physically not able to do them. Right. Um, I can't, I can't just levitate. Oh, right, so that, okay. that, yeah. I mean, that's like a, that's a, a very sort of ridiculous example, but, but there are other <laughs> physical, <laughs> you know, uh, f- physical restrictions to things I can and can't do because of, of the nature of my existence. And then there are, physics. Um, yeah, yeah of physics. Uh, and then there are the, uh, the, the limitations or the expectations that come from society as to, uh, you know, what is, what is deemed to be acceptable behavior. 
Right. So um, my options that, you know, if I want to just burst out singing super loud at the top of my lungs in the supermarket, that's not, that's not something, or I know that there's a societal pressure that that is not an acceptable behavior. You know, it's not damaging to anyone, but it's just not, it's just, it would be considered weird and people would look at you funny. So um, and whether we decide we want to avoid that type of, um, scrutiny or if we just decide we don't want to do something that would make people think we don't we don't fit with the rest of society that is a limitation on the choices we have one of the things you touched on there is um the social risk you know Mm -hmm. the fear of the social risk and and this is the thing that i came to is sort of realizing that it's well it's not normal you know individuality is actually not normalized uh, which is the opposite of the whole individualization argument of western society um i think there's a there's a urge towards you know there, there's basically a lot of me me culture um basically as a it, it it's manifesting in ways that are approved ways of being an individual as opposed to actually really being about being an individual. You know, we, we, yeah, the norm of particularly Western society is, is, is to deny um, the self, is to, is to deny, you know, um, people be doing whatever, uh, you know, following whoever we are, knowing who we are. And one of the big barriers to actually getting, getting past that is the social risk element. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the idea that, um, and, and it is very real, that when you actually start um, behaving in ways and, and uh, articulating your thoughts in that that are, that are different than others, there will be a, um, a, a negative, you know, sort of uh, pushback. Um, and I, I'm not going to, you know, candy coat it. There will be. There will be because that's, uh, but... You know, I think you sort of learn to see that it's um, it's not because there's anything wrong with you. It's not because you're necessarily, you know, you're bad or you're doing something that's innately wrong. It's because it's weirdly, it's 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 considered weird to sing, you know, or to break <laughs> yeah. out in song. Yeah. Right. So so you know so let's disarm you know that disapproval you know in in that moment. Um, but yeah, social risk you picked up on is yeah, is hit hit the nail on the head there. And I think that that's where gameplay uh, and and if I'm speaking specifically about uh, role play, like role playing games, tabletop role playing games that are that are essentially social games. For me, I talk a lot about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role game playing games, and um, how when I made the realization that they're not so much games as they are collaborative storytelling efforts with yep. some rules applied to sort of add some fairness or some um, you know chance into the into the experience but really it's about a group of people sitting around at a table and trying to to write the best story and the referee is really just there to keep story structure in mind and make sure that all these elements being put together uh, form the best story for everyone Uh, and i use improv as an example and say that the improvisation or the the emergent storytelling that happens in improvisation is not is not really there between the audience and the players 
You know, a lot of people think that the interaction comes from audience giving suggestions to the improv players on a stage. Mm. But if you think about it, um, you could have a troop of, of improv actors on stage who say, hi, we're going to improvise a scene for you now. And then they just get it, go into it without ever having rehearsed it. But the audience would, would have no idea if it was improvised or not. So the, the suggestions are really just there as proof. The emergence happens between the actors themselves, the players on the stage. They don't know where the story is going. It just sort of happens. And the reason that it works is because they all have the same understanding of story structure. Now we could debate because you're talking about how uh, we have certain story structures that exist in Western culture and they are what they are because of, you know, hundreds of years of, 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 of storytelling, if not more. Um, but, but it is, yeah. it is a way for them. It is a framework for them to work off of and how to tell a story. Uh, when you see people play tabletop role play games for the first time, uh, especially people who come from video gaming. Uh, and I remember uh, a situation where I had a group of players Everyone was new and I described a scene and then I just turned to the players and said, what do you do? And they all kind of just looked around (laughs) shell shocked and said, well, what are our options? (laughs) And I'm like, you don't, you just, whatever you could possibly imagine. (laughs) Yeah. You want me to imagine? Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like, yeah, give, give me the Lego kit with the instructions on how to build it, not mm-hmm. not give me Lego bricks to generate my own, you know, mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it, and yeah, it it isn't just it isn't just the audience prompts. Most definitely, it's the state of mind, and as you know, it's a practice skill in terms of yes, understanding like the schemas of story that you can quickly put in there, and to the point of it probably you know being uh, being a bit intuitive because you really have to be in the moment, you know, mm-hmm. and responding responding to um, each other. Uh, but I think the the, prom- the, the prompts are everywhere, you know, it's, it's from the audience as well as the fellow actors because you have to um, build off each other. And, and one of the things that I really like about improv in that regard is it takes you out of your, your ego and your need to control, you know, in that regard. Like you, um, like some people do, pre- you know, pre-plan or, or those, it, it sort of loads up previous moments that they've done and things like that. But um, but the, the sort of improv that, that I am facilitating with the card game that you're talking about, it is about being in that headspace where you can't strategize. You, hmm. you can't strategize. You don't have everything that you need to, you know, to do this properly, right? Um, everyone's in the same boat. Uh, and you, you've just got to go with it. And there are, there's more stuff that's going to keep happening, but, and that works. The benefit of that is a couple of things. One, um, you you're you're actually being um, prompted. Uh, you're being interrupted, which means that you're given um, another thing to respond to. Which which um, uh, hang on, I'm, I'm losing my words here. But <laughs> it's basically enabling you um, to continuously create 
in the moment according to what's there as opposed to needing to, to fail as if it's um, solved and it's locked and I have control of it. You never have control over it. Hmm. But, the, but the, the way the prompts are structured is that no matter what you do in response, it's funny. Right. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's like you don't, you don't have to bring the funny in that regard. Like it's structurally there, so it doesn't matter you know, what, what, what you do. Um, and so whenever someone does bring something really clever and interesting and funny, it's like, right, you know, it's, it's raises it's the bar. Up. Yeah. yeah. And everyone's like, Oh, wow. You know, that was great. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the, the prompts aren't, um, you know, yeah. Like they're not forcing people to bring, to, 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 uh, to bring the, to bring the good stuff. Uh, the juice right. is already there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to bring the it, good it, stuff it's good it's yeah i i keep thinking like like prompts when you talk about prompts it also makes me think about how i mean outside of a game environment even just in a, in a standard um like a really good world building in in any kind of fiction um would be it film or television or a book um there's this this element of negative capability have you heard of this concept where uh, uh like yeah jeff jeff yeah uh Je jeffrey long who's who's amp who, who's you know uh, popularized negative mm -hmm. capability yep mm -hmm. go on go on so, so just just the, uh, this idea that you you add in these you add in elements and you never really explain them you leave them open to interpretation or um uh or uh, uh you leave them open for um the audience to determine or ask questions about what that is. So for, for uh, instance, just going back to film, if we think about Mad Max Fury Road and uh, they talk about locations that they never visit, you see some characters briefly who, who come from, um, what is it like the Bullet Farm and Guzzoline Town and and as an audience member, you see the the visuals of these individuals, and you hear about the places that they're from. But that's it. That there's it's it's not what the bullet farm is is not something that is important to the story. Other than that, that, that is a location that exists. But as an audience member, you 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 question, well, what is that? What can I imagine? And that's where I think the imagination takes hold and starts to fill in a lot of. The, the the negative spaces with your own story and and i think that's a lot of where and why going back to star wars um why the fans have such a, a grasp of that that world of that universe because there was so much negative cap capability uh, sown throughout the films and then later on the books and it's not because that there's this this large um body of external um external fiction like from like a like the, the the expanded universe as they call it it's more that yeah each piece always has a thing that lets the audience imagine what it is and once you start adding your imagination to a story you really start to feel like you own part of it maybe not maybe not uh, consciously but you feel like it becomes yours a little bit uh, and I'm really excited to see where stories that actually start to take that into account, like we could, you know, as we start to say, we have these fans, 
it's this is not going to be a, a story or a franchise where we as authors are going to have complete authority over what happens in the world. We're going to have to include what our fans are. And with technology the way it is today, you know, um, we can do that. We've already seen television shows that uh, from season to season take feedback as episodes go live to air and take mm. that into account in the writer's room. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's like um, listening to an audio drama and you're immediately cued, you know, to to, to imagine. And, and that's why a lot of people find that quite immersive and even, you know, a, a, and a book immersive. It's like, oh, I'm immediately cued to do a whole lot of the imagining. And and so that negative capability that you're talking about, those, those seedings are the visual equivalent. You know, of mm-hmm. of queuing, you know, doing doing that um, that mental mental work of of um, you know creating that story world model in in the head, which is great. And but yeah, there's all, anything that opens up uh, for people. Like one of the things I've I've been looking at is um, the structure of endings um, and how. Um, ending endings work and how open um, facilitating optional thinking um, operates in, in relationship to the structure of, of some things. And I was looking at how, you know, there was a move towards closed endings where basically it's like, um, yeah, it's like this is what happened in the end, right? This is it. <laughs> um, you know, that person died. They went. They 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 didn't. That person won. You know, that's like it's it's done. Um, but then there are ones in which um, open endings in which uh, mm-hmm. what actually happened in the end is up to the audience. But there's a difference between that and what ambiguous endings, which is when ambiguous is you don't have enough information to actually generate um, an ending. An open ending is one in which the creators have given you enough information to actually generate more than one ending and it's up to you to come up with what that is. If, if that difference is, is clear, I can elaborate. But, yeah, it's like is there enough information for you to be, be able to go, um, oh, it that could have definitely happened because I had enough information of the plot and the characters beforehand that yes, it could have gone in that direction or it could have gone in that direction, but it's up to me in terms of my beliefs and what I want from the story to choose the one that that's there, but our greater cultural, you know, but you get pushback even from that because of that, that cultural belief that, that the lack of lived experience with with agency of that being a good thing you know that it's actually good if if you're the one that's deciding um it's it's fine it's just as valuable as an author telling you the ending um yeah. i just decided i was going to go look for links to put in for ambiguous endings versus opposite and it's always like not such a happy ending. The ideology of the open end. I'm like, oh, I don't think I want to put links like that in. I think we want to. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you a link. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, and then this is where you see lots of lots of pain you know, from from uh, fans and that. Like, damn it, why? Um, but but mm-hmm. I thought that the difference and. Um, it was McKee that explained the difference, and I, I haven't found a precursor yet, but there's, there's usually precursors <laughs> um, for this particular one. Um, I found, I found the, the shift, I think it was around the, 
70s or 80s that it shifted to be more closed endings. Um, um, but, but, yeah, making that difference between uh, a story that doesn't give you enough information to actually determine what could have been the ending, right, I can understand that. Is, is is a negative experience yeah um but one in which you know actually it could go you know in yeah. any way but it's up to me um mm-hmm. to, to figure it out well i, I mean know, that's yeah that's interesting i would even bring up um so this is this is going way back um to a movie from 1993 uh called bodies rest in motion uh, and it was bridget fonda phoebe cates and uh Tim Roth and Eric Stoltz. And this is the film. It was about um, two couples, their relationships. Uh, the, it, it, it's, it's basically a, a, like a, a relationship drama, but it, I'm going to spoil it for everyone here, but there's a very sort of open ending where um, Eric Stoltz goes after the woman that he loves and he sees her, her what he thinks is her car parked in a, in a motel. She's left town and he sees the car and he, and he drives by because it's not, not hers. He doesn't stop. It's the wrong car. It's the same make, same model, but it's not hers. And then he keeps going and it ends. That's how it ends is he's decided to go after <laughs> her and he does he find her? Does he not find her? But the interesting thing is that the whole point of the movie is that at least in my opinion when i saw it uh the people i saw it with they were upset that there wasn't a more definitive ending but for me i said the movie is all about people enter and exit our lives all the time and the important thing is you value the ones who have an impact on your life and if they have had an impact on your life and have changed you then they're always with you they're always a part of your life whether they are there physically or not and um yeah, so he's he's yeah. uh, going on the journey with, with him valuing. Um, he's basically saying there are people I value in my life, mm-hmm. and I'm you know pursuing that 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 appreciation and value of of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that, that's exactly it. It's connected to your your beliefs and your values, and that right. makes sense. Therefore, and that's what those kinds of endings promote. Mm-hmm. But I think people are just not used to valuing their own. So yeah, it's like no, no. It, it just if you're right, it feels like people require to have give me the definitive ending. Tell me what happened. You know what is your official account of what happened? It's, it's almost like this: the author's uh, authority over the story has become so valued that uh, it doesn't matter what people say or think we want to know the truth you know there's so many cases of, of films or books where they have these sort of open endings and then the fans always say we want to know what what really happened we all have theories but what really happened you know in inception did did the top topple or did it not and i i i really respect writers and directors who who then say, I'm not going to tell you. No, that the whole point is that I don't tell you, that they don't make a definitive thing. And I think that we've seen a lot, especially in Hollywood in the last 10 years, people start coming out with uh, sequels to old franchises and, and, uh, uh, or sequels to old movies that start to explain the things that happened in those movies. And <laughs> you, you completely destroy the, the, the negative capability or, uh, and you also then you're starting to tell people what actually happened 
when in their minds they were coming up with their own answers to things. And sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. I, well, the whole idea of the truth, like the author knows mm-hmm. the truth, um, but and it's uh, it's because of this deeper cultural thing. I call it externalism, but it's basically we've we've been trained to believe that the the we we never have our own truth. Like our truth, our personal truth, our own truth is not on the table. It's not of value. Um, it's not something to tap into. It's not something to know um, that the truth is always external to you. Um, and um, to basically value other people's version of the truth more than your own experience of, mm. you know, your own reality. Uh, it's the same, the, the same way that we curate our social feeds to only be the best parts mm-hmm. of us, you know, as opposed to saying to someone, like when someone says, how you doing? You're like, I'm, fuck, I'm depressed. I, I'm drinking too much. I can't sleep. This pandemic is driving me bananas. And, you know, I feel, really feel for my kids. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> like they're, they're all, they're, all people are waiting for is I'm doing okay. You're like, oh, okay. Is that what you want? Oh yeah. I'm doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, it's interesting how you talk about, um, Chris Terry, you're saying that it's it's our truths that you know we we aren't uh, we aren't taught to sort of believe in our own truths. That truth is always something that is external. Um, but then I think that we've also seen a shift to where um, belief and opinion are now substituting for truth because we've we've always been taught about our own beliefs and our own opinions. But we are seeing uh, that people now, if they have a belief, they they see it as truth. So at the same time, we want people to tell us the truth of what happened in that book or that, you know, what happened to that couple in that movie. But also, I don't care what anyone else tells me about COVID. I don't believe in masks. So <laughs> therefore, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah. that is now a truth. It's not a belief. It's not an opinion. And, and so yeah. I think you're really hitting on two things that I find extremely interesting right now. And that is this emergent storytelling as, as you know, an entertainment practice, but also as a means for audiences to get more involved in, in the stories that are being told. Uh, and then on the on the flip side of that, this this really strange evolution of what the truth is. Yeah, I one of the ways because I've been trying to reconcile that, my, you know, myself. It's like, okay, if it, you know, if I'm talking about this, then then what about the people who say, "Hey, my truth is, you know, no masks and you know, mm-hmm. um, and only white people and mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh." Okay, um, so the thing that I've come to, you know, at the moment is I think one of the differences, and, it, and it's not just those people, but, um, but there's, there's a, a deficient relationship with the self, um, you know, where, where a lot of that is coming from, um, where they're, they're, it's like their first resistance in a way. Like it's in the direction of something that's really good, but it's within the paradigm of 
of the world that has been created for them. Mm. I call it the radiator principle where um, let's say you're moving towards the sun, you're moving towards the warmth of the sun, but you're stopping at a radiator. You're stopping at a heater and you think that's the sun. You're stopping at a human constructed idea of what a sun is. So you're going in the, in the right direction. It's like, you know, there's people are talking about that is like a right direction of like, um, I, I want to have agency in the world and all that sort of stuff. And, and of course, yes, the irony is they're the most privileged people that are saying that. But as I said, I think it's because they have the most deficient relationship with self um, mm. that, you know, uh, and the only way that they can express that they could, the only way that they could understand or, or delve into the idea of moving beyond the surface reality is via conspiracy in that. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I think there's, a, there's some knowledge there about cults and how it's a, um, I can't remember the word, but it's basically, um, it's a knowledge access problem. Like there's a, there's a, there's a very limited amount of knowledge that these people are sort of available to them. And so I see the drive is going in a good direction, but they're only seeing, you know, uh, right on front of them. Um, You know, it's like, ah, yes, yes, you need, but go ahead. It's like the, uh, the filter bubbles. So, I mean, our, our, our news feeds, they only present to us the things that, uh, that they that the news feed that the algorithm believes that we want to see, right? So so if we are always being given this reinforcement of things, like you said, you you you, it's a limit of knowledge. I'm only being given certain knowledge that I will agree with, and then it just becomes this echo chamber where it's reinforcing my already existing values. Yeah, I think there's a difference though between because okay. I sort of look at it and I go, I go, I, I curate my own. You know my own bubble, and you know, in a way, I, you know, I, I, I don't have a lot of, you know, COVID deniers in my feed, sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so the argument is being, oh, I'm creating a bubble, sort of thing. But I think that one of the differences I see is that there's people who have internalized the belief of a monoculture, a very different. You know, that is its own bubble. But when you actually realise that the monoculture is actually a construction and that w- there, are, uh, there are multiple um, realities, you know, we live in a pluriverse, there are, there, um, there's not just one way to be and exist in this world. You actually are able to see the monoculture and other, other ways of being. But when you just exists within a monoculture you cannot actually perceive the way other people are living and so these other ways of living are interpreted you know through that lens um and so you know so a very i guess a simple example that comes to mind is like um you know if I was sort of younger and looking at myself now, it's like, oh my God, letting yourself go, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, you're, you know no. why don't you have a full time job? Yeah, yeah, well, it was, you know, sort of like, oh, why aren't you, you know, why are you letting your, your white hairs go through? You know, it's just like, oh, you just, you know, through that lens, you see anything that's different as, as being lesser as huh? opposed to actually a different choice. It's like anything that's outside of the monoculture is viewed as a weakness, mm-hmm. as 
uh, someone who hasn't figured it out yet or is not good at the game. Um, and so they don't even perceive that there are actually other ways to exist. Um, and so that's how I sort of see the differences of the filter mm-hmm. bubbles in that regard. And, and so bringing that back to storytelling, do you then feel that giving uh, players or audiences this opportunity to have agency within your card game, or I'm assuming your that your VR game is, is following similar sort of mechanics and principles, is that then maybe uh, opening them up to different possibilities? Yeah, it is. It's intentional to have more um, little lived experiences of what it feels like to, you know, to actually, um, yeah, to have more agency, to have a positive cooperative experience as opposed to a, um, you know, that like as you know, like the norm of of mechanics are the norm of game design um, and and this this plays out in films and that as well is domination um, and externally defined measures of success, right? The the system and other players always define your success. Otherwise, it's not a game, right? You know, Uh, and, 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 you know, the ultimate norm, of course, is a zero-sum game where there's one winner, you know, um, and all the rest are losers. Um, and so for me, it's yeah, crucially important to, um, to, to show that there's other ways to design and to design well. You know, that's, that's the thing. It's not just, it's not just non-design, right? <laughs> like yeah. We're not moving into undesigned territory when we, when we move away from those systems, which is the way that they're framed. You know, it's un, un-games or it's anti-design. And it's like, no, there's still design involved. You just can't see it. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, having having those experiences, um, those those mini lived experiences um, over and over again. So we're widening our palette of of the human experience. Yeah. Sorry, I, I realize I missed the the initial conversation about the the card game, but um, I did catch it as it went. Did you already speak about the? Oh, there's my cat. I've been like looking down, waiting for her to jump up. <laughs> She's just a, Yay. oh, she's totally, okay. I'll just leave her up here. Um, Welcome. <laughs> she uh, loves me and no one else. So yeah. My daughter is heartbroken because she's a floofy little cat, oh. but she loves me and doesn't love my daughter. Mm. Um, anyways, okay. the question oh. I have is, and, and you talked about improv a lot and you talked about, uh, Stefan, you, you talked about, you know, doing improv, but also the concept of the open-ended storyline <laughs> involved in role-playing games and uh, and how that pertained to sort of uh, whether that's an, a lack of imagination in the average person or a, an unwillingness to accept that imagination is required to play. I think I think back to the, the couple of turns of D&D that we played with our group and, and I realized swiftly that I have a lot of imagination. I just don't care to role play like i don't care to mm. <laughs> you know like by the end of, by by our second turn I, I was like you know i think this guy did this can i just call him out on that like i had to ask if it was all right because i didn't i didn't know the general rules and it seems like i'm always playing with people that knew everything about the game so i was like could i just say you did this thing and i think you're lying <laughs> but i mean with the with the card game and and as a narrative 
would you call yourself a narrative designer? Like you, you design a narrative so that it, it can be collaborative and cooperative and also be, you know, a, a tributary of, you know, the narrative. So it could be winding around and you could join or, or, or leave it at any point and it still could make sense to you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I had a moment narrative. of like, Oh my God, did I just ask a stupid question? Just the way you talk, the way you've been speaking, the way I've been like overhearing what you've been saying. And I don't mean to, I hate to, to have interrupted that. I just feel like I need to clarify. I just love the way you're speaking. And it, it, it has to do with, it feels like, it feels like uh, proving an acceptance of things going, you know what I mean? Like there's this real ebb and flow to the way you, you discuss your work. And I think that that's something that is kind of, it becomes, we become very black or white. We become very straightforward or stop. And I, I love the, it feels very woven, you know, very tapestry based the way you, the way you talk about the work you're doing. Uh, Thank you for saying that because it, it, I've actually been consciously working to, um, I've been compartmentalized and I found that as soon as I actually brought all these aspects of myself together, you know, so the, my design way of thinking was operating separate to my, my feelings and wishes about the world and way people interact with each other and my understandings of, of theory and, and all that sort of stuff. And they've been working in parallel and I, I had actually, um, you know, have them compartmentalized, um, disconnected, and I've through that process of of having a better relationship with myself that meant making the connections between all of them, mm-hmm. and so and that freed me up. So mm-hmm. when I am I'm engaging the conversations and when I'm creating, it's all parts of me that are actually working with each other, mm-hmm. um, and I allow I allow them all to emerge and be there as opposed to the active censoring work that I've done in most of my life. You know, um, we, we, we talk a lot about it. The podcast is, is all about, you know, creativity and, and, and Stefan and I have talked at length about our various interests as it, as it pertains to being creative. And, and, you know, like I was trained as an illustrator and I started doing code and doing animation and things like that. And now I'm, I don't know, building things for a living. So, it is an interesting thing when you say you compartmentalized yourself and that's, that's what we do more often than not. A lot of us, when we reached a certain age, you've, you've put down the one, that thing that you enjoyed, but maybe it wasn't going to pay you. And you, you start to start to think of things in, in terms of like, how do I pay that bill or how do I pay this bill? Um, and it, it, it was something you said earlier that, that really struck me. You were like, I, I, maybe I don't need to, maybe I don't need to worry about this particular thing. And it, it could be like, how do I get other people to think along those lines? Because the collaboration is difficult when you can't pay your bills, right? Like you, you can't, you can't yeah. be creative if you're so concerned about paying your phone bill or like paying your mortgage or whatever. Like right now we're in yeah. the middle of get, this get food, where anything, you, yeah. anything, you know, there was, a, yeah. there was an interesting, I saw an interesting quote where somebody had said, um, I think it was at the aviator where he's having lunch with, with, um, with that, with the rich family. And, and they said, Oh, money is so boring. And he said, well, that's because you've always had it, <laughs> you know, and it, it yeah. is, mm-hmm. it is an interesting thing. The people that talk 
they, they tend not to worry about when they don't worry about money it's because they've always had it. And so they, so they can, I'm free to do whatever. You're like, wow, that's amazing. I still need to do this job. <laughs> right. Like I, I can't imagine yeah. not doing it because it, every time I've been free, it's not been pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that one of the things, like when you talk about comp- comp- <clears throat> compartmentalizing, what I want to say is when you talk about comp- comp- God damn it, Compartmental- compartmentalizing. We all have our words. Me- <laughs> I do. I have. I have one less than you guys, though. <laughs> Apparently, compartmentalizing is it. Compartmentalizing. 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 <laughs> so when we talk about comp- <laughs> <laughs> oh, once I nailed specificity compartmentalizing means nice. nothing <laughs> all right I, I, i'm losing my brain here no, so, and this is bizarre so this is this goes to what i want to talk about so the deal is um i think about this uh dr betty edwards she wrote the the book called uh, drawing on the right side of the brain and it's it's got the whole first part of the book this is one of my favorite books of all time it goes into like uh, like the the makeup of the brain and how the the two different hemispheres of our brain uh, uh, attack problems and it's one of the things that i love about it is that many people get to this point where they can't draw better than they could in the third grade so they develop these drawing skills and then they get to a point where they can't go beyond that and part of the reason is that the left side of the brain has decided, for instance, it knows what an eye looks like. There's a symbol for an eye and it's, you know, uh, a a sharpened oval with a circle in the middle and then some lines for eyelashes and that's an eyeball. And so even when you're looking at a subject and trying to draw them, the left side of the brain is saying, yeah, 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 it's an eyeball. I get it. I know what it looks like. I know that the two eyes are the same size and they're left and right of the nose. Stop looking at this and stop giving me more information. I can do this. <laughs> and it, it just created a shortcut. It created an icon for us or for, for, for you as an artist. And you have to sort of unlearn all that and to actually look at what's really in front of you and draw what's there. And I think that it's almost like that is a nature of, of how human brains work. This compartmentalization and uh, creating icons for things. So it's, an, it's either a need we have, or it's just a way that the left side of the brain works, which is the dominant hemisphere. It's the one that wants to do every task. And we have to kind of train ourselves out of that. And I think that the, some of the work that you're doing is sort of facilitates that because it puts people in a position where they have to use creativity. They have to use their imagination. And Hugh, you're absolutely right. Like when we were playing role-playing games and it's like, I have an imagination. I just don't really feel like role-playing. I don't really feel like doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or I feel as like an outsider because other people have more understanding than I do. I think in that I can be very, blunt about it it was just it was so there was it was too much about the rules and not about the story Mm -hmm. and and one of the things that you and i had discussed was if we were just telling a story and behind the scenes you went yep you'd managed to do that thing you were supposed to do Mm -hmm. i could have been totally into it but i i could Mm -hmm. not i could not get past i can think of things very easily but i couldn't get past 
being hammered by rules that really, you know, it takes, it takes away all the spontaneity of the story. You also mentioned working on a VR project. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We said, you know, there, there's overlaps in terms of the, the ideology behind the design, you know, that we've sort of spoken about in that mm. regard. Um, but yeah, the VR project is, um, it's a, a short narrative VR co- cooperative experience Um uh, between a blind spider and its guide fly. Um, often it, uh, on their radical friendships, uh, smashing the status quo. For me, one of the things that I had to think about was, um, well, not I had to, I wanted to think about was, okay, how, if one of the characters is blind, how, do, how does that play out in the form? You know, what, what does that mean in terms of the form? Uh, so I, the... The guide fly character is the person with the headset and Mm. the other character has no headset. The other player has no headset. Um, And and so it's a um, collaborative experience where you're working together, cooperative, you know, you're working together. Um, It's highly social. All of my games are highly social. You know, Mm. they involve... Uh, it's it's being on social mechanics and like you've got to talk with each other and do things. Um, And it's a mini... um, uh, but the, both of them, sorry, have controllers. So both of them, you know, have ways of being in the world. Um, and they're in this backyard. <laughs> they, don't, they don't see it as a backyard, obviously, but, you know, in, in terms of the VR world, it's a, it's a mini world, um, sort of mini open world in that regard where they can uh, go through and e- explore that world. So I'm playing with the design of no text, no voiceovers no nothing because the players need to talk with each other in order to make it work i can't have i can't have you know the other characters voicing things or or anything so um you know one one of the things i really like about it is that that means that i can instantly see this game by the way oh can you oh yeah yeah Yeah? what do you imagine so i so here's here's what i imagine i imagine that the fly can see the whatever and the spider's yeah. uh, haptics are what drive it in the correct directions. So, like, it knows the the fly is going because it moves its its uh, controllers in certain ways, and it knows it's going in the right direction because it starts to vibrate more and more if it's pointed the right direction. And you can join it up and be going in the right direction as long as both controllers are in the right direction. That's how instantly what I thought. I was like, I was like, oh my mm. god, if the headset was the spider's view you would have just nothing but darkness and the haptics would bring up little sparks to just show you you're going in the right direction. Right. But like, it makes more sense that the spider has no, has no, no vision whatsoever, but yeah. the fly does. I, I love, I don't want to get it. I don't want to get into it too much, but I love it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's such a lovely yeah. idea. It's such a lovely idea, you know? And yeah. And I'm, and and, and yeah, so I'm really excited, you know, and it, it means also that blind players can play this. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, you know, and, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, thank you. we can finally play a VR game. It's like, That's yes, great. you are a valid player in this, right? You're an equal valid player. Yeah. And you can play this. Um, That's fantastic. And yeah, and I guess one of the things for me is, when you're talking about role play before, um, I'm sort of light touch with role play. Um, so I'm sort of, yeah, I don't, I don't have, because of, I guess that idea of like, you're bringing, yeah, for you're, sure. you're 
bringing yourself to this. Like I really want people to draw on themselves. Um, I do have... I do have the options of characters, but it's light touch. You know, it's 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 basically you can you can dig into this if you if you want it as your mode of play. Um, but otherwise, it can it's just another um, prompt for you to draw on um, in that regard. And I guess one of the things I'll, I'll share with you both because I'm excited about this idea with it is um, because one of the characters needs to basically be describing what they see, right? Um, so what that does is that trains a whole lot of people to do audio description uh, um, immediately. And so it's normalising audio description in that regard. And then there's going to be a short um, film that goes with it, that people will most likely see the short film first and then play the VR experience. And um, the short film won't be, um, it'll be in the same style. So it'll be, you know, the fly character going, oh, I can see you, right? Oh, okay, cool. You know? <laughs> so it'll be like in the style of the actual VR experience. So it sort of, it works as a tutorial for the VR experience and has right. a very different narrative approach than most you know, sort of films have. And that's something I'm really excited about. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I love it. Like every, like every bit of it is, is to me just, it feels really sweet for lack of a better word. The, the, the concept of, of <laughs> helping someone along. And it just reminds me of holding my daughter's hand and letting her jump off a curb and her feeling really victorious as a two-year-old that she jumped off a thing and going look daddy and i'm like i know i totally saw that you know and like that sort of <laughs> did, did you did you witness this with me like that to me is is what makes it really interesting is the 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 multi-part witnessing of an experience i love it but it's it's really emphasizing the fact that we have very different experiences of the world mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. we're, we're doing this together it's but we have very different experiences of of this um and so afterwards it's like oh this and you know so there's more to talk about afterwards as well but it is it is a radical friendship and i'm i'm going to be really careful with the design that it's not lopsided as the spider character being completely dependent like um, it's really important that the spider actually has a lot of things that they can do in the world that the fly needs mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's it's not it's not setting up that that sort of thing of like one is dependent on the other because that's it's not it's just two very different people, very different ways of experiencing the world that are coming together. It, just, um, it reminds me of the that's an important I've, part. I've been rewatching uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, and there's a there's a. <laughs> You guys don't. Or there's an earthbender. I know she's it. blind, oh, yeah, yeah. and and she can see just as well as everyone else because her feet pick up on all the vibrations around her. So she's an incredibly talented earthbender, but but she can also because of her earthbending can see everything around her. And and that was initially my thought was, oh well, the reason this spider can see is they have incredible senses in their limbs, and yeah. on the on the web that's how they track whether or not something's been mm -hmm. caught because the web vibrates and they can track it down so i'm like oh well it would be a, it would still be an amazing predator but it would it would be really you know in my head the story is fly catch gets caught in the web spider runs up and the and fly goes oh you can't see poor spider you know and it's and the, and there's this <laughs> whole like let me help you you know 
do you want to go see another leaf? You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Like that's how in my head, what I'm seeing, it's just cute. It's the cutest little. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I think like that's not the story like, you shut up <laughs> yeah yeah like, like, okay agency but not that fucking agency right you know um, <laughs> who's gonna devour the fly um, oh see <laughs> well I, yeah as it, it's like it's really important that um yeah the spider has its own it's not actually a need right it's not as mm-hmm. if it's deficient until yeah, the course. fly comes along yeah, yeah, and that's why it's like okay, uh, but 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 exactly what you're talking about are the assumptions that people will or the expectations that some people will be coming in with, mm-hmm. and and that's what you designed to that well mm-hmm. that's what I designed to mm-hmm. it's like okay this is what they'll be coming in assuming some not all um, and so you know how can how can I play with that you know. Um, Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah, As I, my, a lot of my family members suffer from, you know, uh, vision issues. And it's, it, it is a, it's instantly what I think is like, how do you give someone power over their selves and, and their environment? And I love that the, the concept of agency has, of course, been sort of rife through this, this episode, but. Um, yeah. What, well, the, I mean, it's, but it's also getting back to, I think what we're talking about before as well, is that, you know, when they talk about the social model of disability where where people could focus on the problem being the person as opposed to the society around it. Like, you know, it's a society that creates the, the problems um, that not the actual disability. The disability is difference. It's a society that makes that living with that disability a horrible time. Um, and it's that same mm-hmm. thing of like agency in the world and expert, you know, being in the world. Um, the, the, the dominant norms are, um, yeah, they really are about a denial of self and not, um, not being able to, um, to be whoever you are as a unique being. Um, and this is where, you know, those ideas inform the kinds of designs the kinds of projects that we make and the way we make them um and then can influence you know um have it have an effect you know on other people's lives you know from that do you have a do you have a whiteboard that you're that you write your stuff down on and and it's just all full (laughs) right now (laughs) you have a list or a spreadsheet i would have a spreadsheet really it's every project would be a tab (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it would be like infinity tabs is that what happens so you just have yeah. an idea and like you get it started and, and get it to a point where okay i can stop and move to the next one or how do you how do you typically do it because you have a lot um, you're talking about a lot of projects at one one time yeah i zigzag i <laughs> i i can't i i can't i can't do sequential um uh, projects at all um i i discovered that when i was working on my phd I was like, have to, have to work on the PhD, have to finish the PhD. And, and then I just realized that, no, that's not the way the mind works. You know, um, let my mind go off and play with something else. And that actually frees up my, you know, subconscious processes to actually come up with mm-hmm. some good juicy stuff, you know, for the PhD. And so as soon as I understood that process, it was like, mm-hmm. um, it was fine. And even when something is due, like if I have a client, you know, something is due for a client and my head is, my head is like, you know, going, oh, going in that direction. I just go with it because I know it'll be over pretty quickly. 
you know, it, it won't actually take up all my time and I'll, I'll suddenly be inspired to come back again. I have this, um, this concept of what I, what I call a, a productive procrastination. And it's, it was this thing where I guess last year was the first time I really noticed how it worked. And um, so I would always have this tendency to uh, when work, when a problem would come in or some kind of work issue or some kind of task is given to me um, very often, I would sort of feel the need to go and cook or clean or uh, organize something that that you know really doesn't need to be organized right now. Um, but what I realized what was happening was that um, my brain was processing the task or the problem, and it was saying, "Look." I don't need you sitting in front of a computer and trying to get this out while I'm working on it. Go do something completely menial where you, you don't need me and I can keep thinking about this issue and you can go and, and like file your, um, your game board game collection or something, or, or organize your books on that bookshelf that you haven't organized yet. Right. Uh, and I would come yeah. back and I would realize I had actually been, working through this issue mm-hmm. subconsciously without really, without really, like I would, I would all of a sudden make a, a leap. I'd be like, Oh, boom, there's the answer. And I was like, how was it that I was able to find that? So, so quickly. And it wasn't quickly. It was because for an hour while I was cooking, my brain was actually just starting to, you know, shave off all the corners and make the the piece fit the puzzle. Yeah. Because when you're, when you're caught up in a problem, the the only solution is the first solution you thought of. And it's never mm-hmm. the right one, you know, like mm. there's a reason you're, you're spinning your wheels is because you keep thinking the solution you thought of first is going to be the right one to do. Every time you step away from it, it gives your brain a chance to go, Oh, dude, I was so wrong. You know, and you, and you can, you can revisit it in your head. <clears throat> That's happened. That happens all the time. It's why I keep like three or four projects going at all times. Cause there's always one that's like, definitely kicking my ass and I need to like, just give it, give it some air, you know, especially client work. Yeah. I, yes, exactly. It's for me, it's a, it's a combination of um, by association, you know, the, the idea that um, we have two, um, I can't remember um, the gentleman who, who, who identified this, but it was, yeah, it was basically a book on creativity. And he, he said the by association is like, Two things that don't usually come together come together. Um, so it's it's actually doing something else that helps fire up, you know, these interesting ideas. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is incubation. Um, it's it's how incubation works, as you as you know. And the person who I discovered this, well, not discovers the wrong word. It's that, that colonialist word of like, I found it, um, even though it was already there, you know. Um, but, um, um, I, I, yeah, I try to replace it with it met me. So in the moment when I was ready and I was interested in it, that, uh, that idea met me in that moment. Um, and it was actually the um, creator of MacGyver, the MacGyver TV show, um, he, he discovered while he was, you know, working on the scripts for it that, um, that, yeah, if he went off writing or washing dishes or something like that, that that's when it, he actually came up with the ideas. And so he went off and, and researched it. And, yeah, so there's the field of research called incubation. And it's when you are 
keeping busy your front of mind with a sort of trivial task, uh, a sort of menial task that you can kind of do automatically, like ride a bike, like wash dishes, or you know have a shower, whatever. So you're not you're not actually uh, um, expending a whole lot of mental energy to to do this task, but it's keeping your mind somewhat distracted and busy, and that is the sweet spot for mm-hmm. your subconscious, you know, to basically be processing the stuff that you can't process in front of mind. Um, but basically, you know that that's how that happens there. Um, and later on, I heard uh, the actual um, biological or cognitive biology term of transient hypofrontality. Oh, yes, you know, this is, the, it's okay. It's okay to go off and do something else. And this is where the the thing that so many companies do, the capitalist demands of like, you always have to be on, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, you're not really, you're not, you know, you're not working unless you're working, working. And it's like, no, this is, this is actually like, this is how we make right? I need to actually go off and do other things. And it's one of the reasons why I decided to um, pull away from full-time teaching. And that is I was, I was working with the, the students, you know, all the post-grads and that, and, and talking to them about the importance of having time to reflect and step away from your work. But I, w- I wasn't allowed to do any of that. Like, it, like I, you know, every second of my day was like crammed with meetings and stuff. And yeah. there was no time, you know, for me to actually process uh, and consider and do anything else. Yeah. I think that a lot of us realize the variety of projects is more rewarding than doing the exact same project over and over again. And it isn't for everyone. For a lot of us that work in creative fields, the variety of those, the things that we answer from the questions that we give ourselves tend to be the most interesting. Yeah. And, and this is where it's like normalizing people finding out what is their process at this point in time and respecting that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, instead of an externally imposed way of making. Yeah. It's, it's different. And I mean, it is difficult when you, when you're employed to, to tell someone, oh, you know what, I this isn't this isn't how I work. This is when the monoculture thing comes in again. It's like a lot of the people who do feel comfortable with that nine to five think the people who aren't comfortable with nine to five are basically not doing it right or haven't, mm-hmm. you know, or shiftless or lazy or <laughs> Yeah, it, it's in you know, yeah, there's an inadequacy, there's a lack of discipline or, you know, all, all that sort of stuff, as opposed to no, no, there's different ways of being. Where do we take this now? You, you said something before, but I can't remember. Like, it was before when you were t- talking about role play, but you also said something else. Uh, the, I guess the association that some people have with emergent storytelling, well, I guess in some ways it's a strict definition of emergent storytelling, is um, that, you know, it's just the stories that the, the players just generate anyway, um, you know, the, themselves, um, which is somewhat incidental, you know, to the to the to the design. Um, but yeah, what we're talking about is actually um, is actually co-creation in in, in that mm-hmm. regard, um, which you know moves into uh, open world sort of sandbox territory um, in that regard, and it is something that. Um, I think, yeah, it's really, it's really exciting, but there's so many people who um, uh, they blame technology when mm. in actual fact, it's, 
it's you know assumptions and 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 your own relationship you know with agency in the world i think the more the more that i've um connected to myself and um uh, be more of myself in the moment and mm-hmm. uh ignored not ignored but being aware of the limited options that have been available to me and aware of the fact that there are a lot more options that are being offered mm-hmm. um ha- you know has then flowed on to how i actually design options for my mm-hmm. players mm-hmm. it's like oh i mm-hmm. you know i i yeah and building on that um with role-playing games was this was essentially a, a game designer as the the referee right or, or dungeon master or game master uh and and the players are the players and it there's also this sort of uh that the um influence of linear storytelling or the influence of what a a author or writer is has influenced um the perception of the game's master the person who's in charge the referee in that they have a story to tell and the players are the protagonists in those stories but but if they don't follow what i want them to do or the way i want them to approach the story then i must railroad them back into the story the way it's supposed to be which makes for a horrible game and this is where i I feel the same (laughs) lack of agency in vr because if you're playing a video game and you're on a couch and you're and you're you're let's say playing Uncharted, and you are controlling Nathan Drake as he's trying to climb the temple, and then it goes to a cutscene, and the control of that character is rest wrestled away from you. It it's okay because I'm I'm still on my couch and I'm still playing this game, but in a role playing game where you are imagining yourself as this character, or in VR where you actually are inside of the content itself, whenever agency is wrestled away from you it feels like an invasion it's like it feels like someone is controlling your body and it doesn't feel right and it's something that we're just not used to in screen-based media and it's something that is needs to be addressed and we need to understand that as we tell stories we need to let go as writers so as a as a uh as an act of a role-playing game games master or referee, uh, I've gotten to the point where I, I don't know where the story goes. I don't have all the answers. I don't write story. I, I help the players write the story. And so I feel like I'm just another player, but my role is to focus on specific things. And there's a game that I've been playing recently that I absolutely adore because it really puts an emphasis on the player's agency. It's called Blades in the Dark, and it is essentially a game about um, sort of, if you think of the TV show Peaky Blinders, uh, or uh, it's it's like they're like low-level criminals on the street in this strange Victorian-style town. And, but n- none of that really matters. The important thing is that there's no epic story. There's nothing that the games master is trying to tell as an as a as a plot. Plot is all up to the the players. They decide what it is that they want to do for their their characters together as a crew, which is also something very unique about this game. You have a, 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 a crew sheet or a player character sheet that is for everyone. So you all play members of this gang and you all have to decide how to move forward. So it's extremely social. It's extremely, extremely player driven, gives them a lot of agency about where the story goes. And as a referee, I just kind of react and I, 
sort of, I find, um, again, that negative capability, I find those, those uh, places to, to take their story hooks that they've given me and fit them into the world and make sure that they all work together. And every time I play this game, it just, the stories are always great. They always work because it's exactly what the players want because they're in charge. I'm having a great time because I don't know where the whole thing's going. I just, I'm along for the ride just like everybody else. And it always just wraps up nicely. And I think that that type of game design where it really emphasizes uh, the agency and and the sandbox um, nature of it, I think is a very interesting place to be playing in right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I have I have Blaze in the Dark, but I haven't played it. Um, but yeah, there's it's there's a lot of people who rave rave about mm-hmm. you know the the system. I can't remember the official name of the the engine or the system, but um, um, but yeah, it's it's and it, as you say, it changes for you as well as mm-hmm. um, referee. Um, uh, I, I I try and. I try and design a GM less, you know, set of ones. Mm. Um, but but, I, but with the card game, I've adapted it to also be played via Zoom. And I tried many different versions, and I I needed to have. I called it the host, um, um, but um, uh, but yeah, I needed to have someone. Um, facilitating so their role is facilitator you know they don't adjudicate mm-hmm. in any way mm-hmm. um they they facilitate you know what's happening um but yeah it is so fascinating and so exciting that it is story worlds that people are interested in you know so we need a range range of these story worlds mm-hmm. you know so it's it's not um so we've got lots of different content genres in that regard um uh and Lots of different approaches, um, you know, to hardcore role play, to, to you know, no, no, light role play, to GM, to non-GM, and it has been happening in the indie space, but yeah, just not, um, definitely not in video games to a large degree, you know, um, and and this is it is it's so it's so exciting and fun um, to work in, but it is it is interesting having as a designer. Um, two things. One, making sure I'm designing it in a way so that even if someone is not familiar with story, um, uh, being funny, improv, you know, or, or story, they can still play it and they can still be funny, right? Like it, it makes people funny. Um, so that, that was really important. Um, but also I find it really interesting how many designers just cannot see just cannot identify, you know, the the techniques that are that are there uh, at all. I just uh, I, I find it fascinating um, the the literacy, the lack of literacy, um, you know, about this. And it, it's interesting. It's so in the last few years, there've been a few talks on social mechanics, and mm-hmm. they're talking about them in in the. Um, the context of massively multi- multiplayer online games and, and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, they have tended to go into the direction of competitive mechanic, mechanics or, or team, team-based social mechanics. Um, and in, in party games and that, like the, it, it, it defers to that domination culture that I was talking about before. So if there are social mechanics, it's about bluffing. You know, it's about deception. Um, it's about 
you know, competing with each other. Um, and so opening up what these social and story, what these open designs are, what people do, opening up the verbs, right? Mm-hmm. Opening, you know, the, what actually people do to, sorry, with each other and to each other, you know, that's that's critical, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, listen, uh, Christy, this has been fantastic. Uh, w- I could keep talking about this for hours and hours <laughs> until all of our listeners are fast asleep. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, no, no, they would be engaged <laughs> and interested. That's fair. Our listeners are That's dedicated fair. to the craft. Yeah. It's, it's the, it'll be that, that, um, that one radio uh, broadcast where after after the many apocalypses that we have, um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're still talking about we're still talking about uh, interactive design. Yeah, but w- <laughs> while while we are wearing like. Um, uh, uh, tire-based Big armor, rubber tire-based yeah. armor, <laughs> and fighting off mutants as they as they come through the door. I just like the way you said gasoline town. Gasoline <laughs> yeah. town. I noticed that before too. I was like, "Wow!" You were like, "Wow!" You really did it. Yeah. <gasps> what was the bullet, bullet, bullet town? The bullet farm. Bullet farm. Those you, are the two places they gasoline. You so, like this, you zetted that up. I was like, that's fine. Look at you. I think I think we're gonna yeah. we're probably gonna cut it short. But just this one thing of uh, uh, my bag is sci-fi, and and when I was watching the uh, the, the Terminator reboot Genesis Genesis or whatever, and there's this scene <laughs> where they show this montage of the Terminator uh, saves a young. Um, Sarah Connor and then sort of like walks off into the woods and all we that's it that's sort of the, the the flashback montage ends with that but we know that then the Terminator raised her you know and so for the story it's very simple to jump from and she was a little girl that was saved by this big Arnold Schwarzenegger looking robot to now she's an adult and she's a you know combat ready uh, freedom fighter working with an old man Schwarzenegger robot but I'm like, I want, I want the like teenage years. I want to, I want the like. She goes to school and, and has crushes, and her dad has to go to parent teacher association meetings, and he's a he's a, like a Terminator robot. Like, say, she's not applying herself. Yeah, yeah. I could actually apply herself. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Terminator. Your daughter, uh, she seems to <laughs> constantly be smashing the computers in in the computer lab. That is good. She's preparing for the future. Like, exactly. I just I just kept my mind kept going into all these spaces of, of these stories that 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 little moment in in the film created and I can't help myself I can't help but make those connections when I'm watching uh, any kind of film any 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 opportunity for me to ask about what happens to another character I, like I will I will get lost in that and here well, I this- thought I was tangential oh. <laughs> no but th- th- this is a thing. Um, the, we've invented this idea of fiction being outside of the world and separate to the world, but it's actually mm-hmm. a key way that we make sense of ourselves and the world. Um, so, yeah, it yeah. makes complete sense. What, what do you think uh, is next for you? Uh, you've got your three projects that you're working on now. I'm, I'm assuming you're going to be working on those up until or into 2021. Uh, is there, yes. you know, where do, where, we, where do we go from here? <laughs> yeah, so working on these projects and then what 
what these projects entail, um, you know, because obviously there's all the work that goes into launch and there's all the work that goes into production and, uh, and the things that happen there. Um, I'm, I'm also saying because I'm, I've, I'm moving away from education within the university mm-hmm. sort of system um, and I've always done, you know, industry education, if you like, you know, like, you know, stuff with um, fellow mates and, you know, labs and and all that sort of stuff. But um, I see that as coming more to the fore now. Um, You know, I've been running online um, studios for for creators for the last few years. And um, and so it's like I see that as um, another thing that I'll be doing sometime in 2021, I guess. Awesome. Well, Christy, again, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. And also, Hugh, this is, our, I think, our furthest guest yet. Australia? Like for, oh, yes, I guess. I guess so. I guess. So. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought that was... <laughs> I don't, did you want me to be excited? I, I just, yeah, everybody is like, like everybody is one video call away. That's so. true. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I just I was here's here's where here's where I am I'm very glad to have been able to participate. St- Stefan was saying, oh well, I'm gonna set it up for super early in the morning on a weekday, and I was like, can't do it, can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, so I was I was really glad when he said, oh no, it looks like actually it's it's our time. Eight o'clock, like that worked out so well for me. I'm, I'm just really <laughs> excited to have been able to have this conversation. And it, it was it was great to be able to talk with you too. So th- yeah, thank you so much, um, both of you, for the invite. It's uh, awesome, and um, yeah, I, I had a great time. Thank you very much. This episode of Can't Sell This was produced in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All creative content in this episode is copyright Hugh Elliott and Stefan Grambart. Questions or comments can be emailed to admin at can'tsellthispodcast.com. Music for the podcast is provided by Not Of. Find Not Of at notof.bandcamp.com. Opening and closing voiceover provided by jeffwright.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, a like in whatever platform you use goes a long way to helping the podcast get noticed. Thanks for listening and keep creating. See you.